0: The Nonprofit Hour, a weekly look at Portland's nonprofits and do gooders, with interviews, profiles, and documentaries. This is the Nonprofit Hour program here on X Ray FM. The show is brought to us by the Media Institute for Social Change a public interest media lab that works to inspire, empower, and engage emerging media producers. I'm Jason Dennington. In today's Nonprofit Hour show, we'll be continuing in our series of conversations with candidates currently running for Portland City offices by hearing a conversation that Phil Busse had with mayoral candidate Sarah Iannarone. She speaks about her experience as a business owner and virtual ambassador for the City of Portland through her work at PSU with international visitors who come here to learn from our city's model of growth. She finds much to praise about our community and also identifies a few areas in need of change and discusses what she would do about them from City Hall. In the second half of the show, we'll speak with Scott Brown and Ed Zancanella from Surgery Store, who are also in the Afro-Latin blues band, Ojos Feos, which is having a benefit show on Saturday, May 7th to raise funds for their organization, which is training skilled doctors in the African nation of Sierra Leone, which through decades of war and disease has been coping with severely outdated surgical procedures and medical institutions. They joined us to discuss their organization Bring us some music from their band and tell us about the upcoming event. First, though, we have some news to let you know about regarding an event that will be held the following day after the Ojos Veos show, which happens to be Mother's Day. Phil recently spoke with Rebecca Albert of Rosehaven for an upcoming episode, and she told us about their event on Sunday the 8th.
1: With Mother's Day coming up, uh, we, we had Rebecca Albert in the studio to talk to us about Rosehaven, where she's executive director. And uh, thank you for coming in.
2: Yeah.
1: And you, uh, Rebecca, there's, there's an upcoming event at Rosehaven. Can you tell me some details about that?
2: Yes, I'm delighted to tell you about our Raining Roses Walk, which is on May 8th and it's from 10 to about noon, and it's a community walk, and we invite everybody in the community to come walk on behalf of or with the special woman in your life. And uh, it's a 5K stroll through northwest Portland. There'll be a little tour of Rosehaven on, uh, on the walk um, trail, and it features mimosas. It features a wonderful band, lovely food, and the opportunity to walk with your friends or family and have a great morning, and we also get done at about noon so you can go on to your own personal Mel- mother 's day celebrations
1: and and I think really the very important part of that is is a chance to tour Rosehaven and learn about all yeah. the really important work that Rosehaven does and in an upcoming episode of the nonprofit hour, uh, we have a more extensive interview with you, Rebecca, but uh, this is a rose Haven's just such an important Uh, service and and resource in the community, and I I encourage people to uh, visit.
2: Right, and they can log on to rosehaven.org, and they can click right on the Raining Roses Walk icon, and it will tell them all about the walk. Wonderful. Thank you.
0: Now, on to our conversations for the week. Here's Phil with Portland mayoral candidate Sarah Iannarone. Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit
1: Hour. I am pleased to have another mayoral candidate in our studio. Sarah Iana Roan. Did I say that correct?
3: Perfect. Thank you. I appreciate
1: it. (laughs) Sarah, thanks for coming in.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. How? So let's just start with, with a simple question. How's the race going?
3: The race is going fantastic. It's such an exciting time for Portland. And Portlanders are hungry for a candidate who represents their interests and the things that are on their mind uh, and someone who represents them. So I've had a great amount of support from people who aren't traditionally the political insider wonks type start to look at a primary race who generally wouldn't be involved in a primary race. And that's really exciting for Portland, I think.
1: Well, let's let, let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, you're obviously out meeting a lot of people, and and what 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 do you say is or on Portlanders' minds?
3: Well, housing and affordability, right? When you talk about what is the defining issue of this race, housing is on everyone's minds because it's where we where we live. It's literally where we reside, and when you see the a level of displacement that we have as we grow, people are going to concerned. What are we going to do to keep Portland, Portland? Because what we love about Portland is conviviality, its street parties, its neighborhood associations, its bike rides, its sports, its arts and culture, and the things that make us a, a, the subject. You know, why would a TV show named Portlandia even want to start here, right? It was, the, it was what incentivized that that makes Portland amazing. And people are concerned that we're losing that, that we're losing a little bit of our soul, if you will
1: let's let's jump into that then this is the profit hour we we talk about non profits we talk about what profits care about and obviously uh affordable housing is is one of those let's Can we put this in the framework of what what is city hall doing uh what could they do, and what are non profits doing uh in terms of affordable housing that you see is productive right now?
3: my goodness, I mean NPOs and the nonprofit sector are are doing the heavy lifting on housing right now. I mean, when you look at the Home for Everyone Coalition and um, Welcome Home and the work that they're trying to do there, that's 121 organizations, the large majority of which are nonprofits that are leading the charge in the policy discussions, implementation, frontline responders. They are the people who are implementing local policy with regard to housing and affordability right now.
1: Let me ask a more philosophical question then. Are they the ones who should be doing it or should the mayor, city council, city hall be more involved as the leader?
3: Well, it depends on what you mean. You know, when you talk about the various roles, there's leadership and there's implementation, there's funding, and there's also the vision, right? Right. And this is where it starts to get difficult because when you look at the position that we're in as a local, you know, a local government and the role of the federal government and federal retrenchment, if I can say that word on X-Ray FM, I don't always get to say it out in the streets. But when you look at the, the way that the federal government has pulled back with regard to its responsibility and its share of housing funding, say, since the 1960s local governments have had to increasingly state and local governments have had to pick up an increasing portion of that responsibility carving out new money if you will from sources that they hadn't had access to before and in many ways the thir- you know the third sector the nonprofit sector has helped us Make up bridge that gap. So when you when it comes to who should or shouldn't be, a lot of this is having to do because we don't have an alternative right now. And you look at what Portland is doing. I think the vision, what's lacking the city of Portland, and that the, that the nonprofits can't provide, is a vision for Portland's future with regard to housing. We lack a citywide housing strategy. There is no coordinated effort, even at the regional level right now, um, but especially at the city level, since I'm running for mayor of Portland. How many people are coming here? How many people are here? Where are they going to be? Where are the jobs and educational opportunities going to be and how much housing at every level of the economic spectrum do we need to make sure that we have that information does not exist right now and there's not a strategy for getting there there's no way that the nonprofit community can drive that conversation that has to come from the highest levels of the city and in part the mayor has to say this is an important thing and we need to do that so we're going to need some coordination between the housing bureau our planning bureau and metro to to get at some of these numbers so there that's not where the nonprofits i think have the biggest role. They could push toward that. When it comes to implementation and how we're going to get outside money here, I think that that's where they can really make a difference. Let's
1: uh, you're you're running for mayor, obviously, and and there's only so much you can do right. as mayor. You will have limited capacity is, is affordable housing in your top 3.
3: I think affordability generally is in my top 3. I want to make sure that Portland stays a compact connected place where we have Neighborhoods that are livable across the city. So people at every level of the income spectrum are living in these neighborhoods that are diverse, that are connected affordably and efficiently by transit, and that they can get from home to work and school in convenient ways. Because that's the, you can't look at housing in, in this this silo. You can't extricate it from the urban ecosystem of our jobs and our transportation. So looking at that as an affordability you know you know ecosystem is what's going to be important for me
1: Sarah you, you you speak very well about these issues and and you sound informed can you can you give me an idea of some of your background in uh, affordable housing and affordability what what are you bringing to the table that that isn't already there
3: well what i'm bringing is a person who lives on the median household income in portland um Apart from my work at Portland State University, which you may or may not know, you know I went to graduate school at Portland State University to get a PhD in urban planning and while there helped start a program called First Stop Portland. So I've had to learn over the last eight years of hosting city leaders from around the world and advising them how to make their cities better, exactly what's going well here in Portland. So I've had many, many opportunities to share the work of REACH and JOIN and even Falcon Community Arts uh, community here with delegations from Australia and China and Japan as innovative models of how to make cities more livable and more affordable. So I'm very, very in tune there with all of the activities going on in Portland. It's been part of my job description to know who in Portland is doing what and how can we share that with the world. On a at a little bit closer to you know my block and my street level which is where most Portlanders live out their lives is in their neighborhood their block and on their street I'm a small business owner I live out in the Mount Scott Arleta neighborhood which is an outer southeast neighborhood adjacent to 82nd Avenue between you know uh, off Foster Road which is um, now seen as an up and coming neighborhood I think they call it Pole. but when I moved there it was known as Felony Flats and sometimes Methlehem very disparaging remarks toward a, toward a neighborhood that actually accommodated a large part of Portland's lower income people and a large diversity of people. 19 uh, languages are spoken at the local elementary school there. But, you know, I went out there, was able to buy a small starter home and raise my daughter there near a community center and opened a small business because of affordable rents and a community that wanted to have livability and walkability and things like that. So I understand firsthand what it means to invest in local places, local business um, and even neighborhood centers and streets as mechanisms for uplift for communities without pricing people out necessarily.
1: I want to the flesh out. we had said top three priorities, and you said one of those is affordability, and you've been talking about some of your interest in that and some of your ideas. What are your other top two of your three priorities that you'd bring to, to the mayor's office?
3: Uh, police, accountability, police accountability and reform. It's very, very important for us right now. And then also retooling for our post-carbon future. So how can we be uh, adapting to climate change and becoming more resilient and prepared for disasters while using that to our economic advantage?
1: I'm Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour. I'm talking with Sarah Ayon. I am. going to get it uh, by the end of the show. No, <laughs> do, do not enable, okay. please. I Anna Roan.
3: I Anna Roan. Yes, thank you. Uh,
1: who is a candidate for mayor? One of one of uh, several candidates for mayor. Let's let's. I, we're going to bring it back to some of the the substance of what nonprofits in in Portland do and where that aligns with your interest and your your hopes for the mayor's office. I want to talk about the the mayor's race for a little bit because it is it's it's a fascinating process, and. I was at one of the recent events and there were eight candidates there. And what is amazing is largely how civil it is and also how much discussion there actually can be about the topics. And, and that is very different than, say, the Republican uh, uh, debates that there have been, which have turned into shouting matches about size of hands and uh, accountability. And, and is, is, does it feel civil to you?
3: Well, first of all, I am trying to get the Tiny Hands Pack endorsement, so I don't want to diss (laughs) that right now. But um, the feet, you know, what's interesting. Being in the international education or consulting uh, game like I am, there are people from around the world watching. And I said that one time on um, social media very early in this race. And someone was like, oh, you're being arrogant, you know, like no one's watching. And then the tra- you know transportation planner from Toulouse, France weighed in. And then someone from Japan weighed in and an economic development director from Brazil weighed in and said, oh, no, we are watching. What I love about Portland and what I think makes the rest of the world look to us as a model is the fact that when you talk about not just how we're going to build infrastructure like roads and um, transit and affordable housing, even repairing schools and preparing for you know a seismic event, it's the civic infrastructure here that impresses people. That they you can't look to you know um, New York and you can't necessarily look to Chicago and see the same level of civic infrastructure here, and that's part of what makes this discourse so positive and effective is because people here know how to engage in meaningful ways. We have we have pathways to engagement for the average Portlander, and we're working really hard through our equity goals to make sure even more voices are included in that conversation. So we've learned over time how to talk about politics, and that's why I get discouraged sometimes when we think that this needs to be exclusive from the get-go. People like Bim Ditson and um, Jesse Sponberg and even Stephen Entwistle have been adding very, very valuable um, pieces and tidbits to a conversation that would otherwise be dominated by political insiders and, you know, affluent people who are disconnected from the daily lives of Portlanders. And that is very valuable for our political future. It's very valuable for the direction we need to go in it. And it changes the direction of the conversation, if you will, away from the establishment interests and where and to a really meaningful conversation about what will Portland's future look like and who will have a say in that and what direction will we head?
1: You know, and I want to go back to that point you're making about that, that uh, the world is watching in terms of who will be the next mayor, what is the future of Portland. Part of being a model city is also learning from other cities. Are there some cities that you are looking at uh, for your platform uh, in terms of affordability, uh, in terms of police accountability? Uh, that are doing it right that you're are you out there shopping around for ideas
3: oh my goodness if i weren't i would be the biggest fool my my rolodex is one of my biggest assets here yes and in fact when you think about my proposal to have us have a car free portion of our central business district comes straight from oslo who have committed to by 2019 um, getting cars out of a portion of the city center there are cities all over the world that are doing this and can, with partnership with transit and electric vehicles and pedestrian and cycling advocacy are seeing that that can be something you can use to be an economic boost tourism right i've lived in places like new orleans and charleston that have understood that tourism doesn't necessarily have to be bad for a city there are ways to capture it i've learned the good and the bad from those when you think about uh carbon you know uh transforming toward a post-carbon economy finland is doing amazing amazing things and and uh with regard to investments in a cleaner future, how they're even doing uh, smart apps for transit, for integrated transit systems. So I'm looking at those places. Police accountability, Utrecht. What are they doing? They're working with their university to become the number one human rights city in the world, and it's everything from sex workers' rights to surveillance to police accountability. They have a 19-point plan in place as the city of Utrecht. And when it comes to a housing affordability, places like Vienna. Um, what are, what can what can we do with our Public investments to ensure that we have affordable housing stock. And fortunately, um, I know how to get in contact with these cities. Canberra, Australia is another one that's using transit effectively to, um, to connect parts of the city that haven't been connected before, especially suburban. What we do in East Portland, uh, if we could master the art of the suburban retrofit, if you will, for sustainability and inclusion, that's going to be one more thing that the rest of the world looks. At, to us for leadership because there are an awful awful lot of suburbs um, that need to be retrofitted so that they're more carbon uh, neutral and inclusive and equitable.
1: I'm bring it back uh, from Scandinavian countries now to back to Portland. Okay, uh, and then and, and let's keep talking though about your rolodex. Uh, in terms of connections to local nonprofits, how much have you been reaching out during the campaign to local nonprofits, and and how much Um, do you recognize that as either part of your brain trust or as part of the community that you want to tie into?
3: Oh, they're a central part of my brain trust. Like when I, when I want to talk about housing, the first thing I'm going to do is go to the nonprofits who are running that, right? Reach, um, the CDCs, join, again, the Welcome Home Coalition. These are the central city concern. Um, these are the people who are the experts. They're, the, they're on the front lines of these challenges every day. When it comes to transportation, who am I talking to? It's the BTA. It's Drive Oregon. These are the folks who are collecting the data. Right, They're doing the policy work. They're the ones who are in D.C. lobbying on our behalf, trying to get dollars here. They're the ones going to professional conferences and bringing back the best information. I mean, uh, Bike Walk Vote, I got the Bike Walk Vote endorsement the other day. These are amazing resources because the people who populate these nonprofits are the Portlanders. When you look at how do we engage, it's not just by showing up at a meeting. We volunteer. Uh, Friends of Trees is an example that people, governments from around the world love the Friends of Trees model because it's a great way to leverage public dollars to achieve a win-win-win when it comes to how do you get trees in the ground and increase your urban canopy? How do you leverage volunteers to achieve, you know, city municipal goals that would cost much, 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 much more um, if you had to put public workers on that? And then how do you maintain that as a community? connection across your city I mean we could be using that for so much right now and how are we going to adapt some of the existing nonprofit models to meet some of our challenges where there there might be a little bit of a hole so
1: yeah and and you you mentioned that idea of taking the nonprofit model and bringing that into city hall can you explain that a little bit um, I, I think I he- I'm hearing both this can you explain just the idea of what you mean what what are nonprofits doing correctly and how do you think that that could fit into a city bureaucracy?
3: Nonprofits do less with more. I mean, nonprofits have been forced to to maintain their existence by leveraging every dollar, every volunteer hour, every connection that they have to make their work possible. And the best nonprofits are working to make their jobs obsolete, right? The ones that are really, really working hard are saying that we're here to solve a problem and we'd like to see it end. We don't want to maintain ourselves so that we can maintain our structure. We want to maintain ourselves so the problem is done. Um, That's a number one uh, mindset that the city of Portland needs to have when it comes to some of these ongoing problems that we need to be solving for them, not just dealing with them in an ongoing basis. But how do we leverage our resources better? How do for every public dollar we spend, can we partner? Can we find partner dollars from outside to grow those dollars to one to two or three? Also, when we're solving for a problem, can we try and find ways to solve two problems, you know, with every every single activity that we're doing.
1: And when you when you say partner dollars, are you thinking uh, federal grants? I mean, are you thinking Mark Zuckerberg making donations?
3: I'm thinking the patchwork quilt of financing that Portland pretty much does every time it wants to pull off a project because we don't have deep pockets here. I mean, you look at places that have have experienced a similar, if you will, urban renaissance as Portland, right? Something like Pittsburgh and the number of Fortune 500 companies who have philanthropic um, entities that are serving there. Like City of Pittsburgh's budget I think at one point was maybe 40% coming from the foundations who were who were driving this renewal in their city, right? We have nothing of that magnitude. And even when you do look at some of the larger companies here, I'm thinking of precision cast parts. You'd look at our air quality and water quality and things like that here. We're actually not going to be partnering with them. We're going to have to be establishing new citizen organizations to deal with them right now on environmental quality. So what is that disconnect for us? Well, In the land of small things that is Portland, it's us partnering with as many organizations as possible. That's why the Welcome Home Coalition has like, what, 120 signatories at this point, Um, as opposed to maybe two or three major foundations that would put a lot of money in there. Same with homelessness. A great model comes out of San Antonio. Well, 90% or or $90 million of a $160 million budget came from a single philanthropic um, entity, right? Or... Salt Lake City, everyone says, let's look at Salt Lake City because they solved homelessness. Well, that was the Latter-day Saints that threw down a lot, a lot of money to help make that happen. And so we don't have these big donors here like that. Not that there's not money, but that we have to pull a lot, lot more partners in to make things happen.
1: And that's, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. I mean, obviously, the, the, the Portland's form of government is, is very unique for, for a major city, uh, and it is it is a small body. I mean, you have four counselors and you have the mayor, and the mayor is essentially a a, a counselor with some superpowers. One, being able to appoint the bureaus, and then two, being able to decide the budget. Am I hearing you correctly that you're also thinking that the mayor's role could be or should be also to be a fundraiser?
3: Um, I think it's about partnerships. I mean, ultimately, when you're thinking about the city, what we do is have to figure out how we're going to finance the project projects. But the money isn't the driving goal. It's about how can we partner more effectively to get things done. In some cases, partners may bring other things that are not financial, right? When I'm thinking about intergovernmental relations and how we're going to be working with Metro, we're all going to be bringing our money to the table. Um, What does it mean on our Selwood Bridge? I mean, in in many ways, I see a lost opportunity to involve Clackamas County in an important conversation about transportation investments in the future, because you know, that 70% of the trips back and forth across that bridge begin and end in Clackamas County, but they didn't put in money for construction or maintenance of that bridge. So yeah, that's financial and it's about who comes to the table, but it's also about thinking, how do you do less with more? These community-based solutions, you know, in the EU, there's there's a fund set aside, a very small part of the general fund for pilot projects. What does it mean for us to have policies? When you think about what the nonprofit world can do, it's they don't have to commit to these long-term solutions where pol- you, have, you have to watch these policy investments over long periods of time, but you can be more nimble and almost more entrepreneurial about piloting some things, testing them, setting some benchmarks. Does it work? Does it not? And then that tends to generate more revenue over time because you've You've proven that you have real results, and that partnership—you know—that you build through that is how you build capacity, even of the trying of things. I'd like to see us as a government doing more trying of things and saying, "Oh, it worked," or "No, it didn't," and that's okay, because we've got to have all hands on deck for some of these solutions that we're up against. You know,
1: Sarah, I want to I want to round out our conversation with a little bit more talk about the race. You've you've brought up a lot of great ideas for. Uh, solutions and for where you would look for ideas for solutions and and what 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 matters to you let's talk a little bit about the race i mean if you could travel back to time till september 2015 which i'm sure seems like an eons ago any advice that you'd give yourself in terms of how to run your
3: race yeah start raising money right right now go (laughs) go raise money um i wish that we had publicly financed elections here i think it would make for a much more interesting conversation for city of portland uh Money is a huge issue. I'm working hard to raise money right now. Um, I'm looking forward to raising a good bit of it this month. It's I spent a lot of time building my legitimacy in this race as a relative unknown with not a lot of uh, name recognition and no prior elected experience. So establishing myself as an expert on things that happen in Portland and someone who has the political savvy and the understanding and the community connections to actually lead the city was a challenge. But now that I've done that, it's going to be interesting to see how I pull out in that race and hopefully get my name on the November ballot, which is what I'm seeking to do. Um, I'm not sure that I can beat Mr. Wheeler um, in May, but I'd like to come in second.
1: And and you have a few weeks before ballots are in people's hands. What what are you, what what do you feel like is your most effective strategy? Or or where can people find you in the next few weeks?
3: Yeah, well, they can find me. There's a, on my website, Portland, and that's F-O-R, Portland dot com, Sarah with an H too um, there's a events calendar so I'll be doing an awful lot of public appearances at debates coming up um, there's some YouTube videos out there that we've been making for folks who can't attend the debates, we've been trying to capture those because we know everyone doesn't have the free time after a long day's work to come attend a mayoral, a mayoral primary forum and there's an awful lot of noise out there social media is a big one for us because social media is a free channel You know, So we're using social media really effectively. We've come out very, very strong in the last six weeks on social media and built some great following there where people are having interesting discussions about what they'd like to see for Portland's mayor. So I would follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, We're not on Snapchat yet, despite the millennials' protests. Uh, Maybe if we make it through into the general election, we'll get on Snapchat. But working really hard to engage the citizens of Portland in a conversation that they have access to is important for us. Sarah
1: Ianna Roan is a candidate for mayor. One last question, Sarah, and and, and uh, if you would, a musical suggestion to take us out, but do you have a favorite previous Portland mayor?
3: Well, it's a toss-up. I have two. Vera for her leadership, Vera Katz. I'm, you know, I think Vera was an amazing uh, mayor. And uh, Neil Goldschmidt. He'd only been here three years when he ran for city council the first time. And how he was able to understand and tap into the changes that were happening in Portland at the time. Um, as a mayor, when you look at what he did as mayor, you have to admire uh, the ways that he, he was a visionary leader in helping us transform from business as usual, especially when it came to highway building and thinking about what our, our car-free future would look like and how the role of neighborhoods and communities. So he was able to take that 30,000-foot perspective and connect it right down to the block level where Portlanders lived, and you have to appreciate that as in leadership. So both of those two, I think I would admire.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting now that there is uh, 35, 40 years perspective on uh, city council and, and, and mayors uh, in Portland of the 70s of realizing how much what Portland is today is because of those city council members and those, those mayors. Like you, you brought up earlier about uh, Pioneer Courthouse Square, that could easily be a hotel or a parking garage now yeah. if not for city council at that point.
3: But see, these are the stories that I tell visitors. So when I go back, I go all the way back. I mean, we even go back to the 1850s and talk about, you know, what would we have done different with regard to displacement, um, even through settlement here? And what do we need to do? We we share the Portland story, warts and all, with visitors from around the world so that we can learn from them and they learn from us. One of the things that prompted, I'm so glad you raised this point because I don't get to talk about it much as my impetus for entering the race, but... The thing I get from them, the feedback that I get is you've made a really great place here. And again, especially on this civic infrastructure, um, as well as the more sustainable infrastructure that you've built. But that story you're telling me, it's been underway for about 40 years now, right? You've been at four decades and they're doing the math and they're like, what's next? What, What do you got going on right now? And I don't see that. I don't see that coming from City Hall presently. I didn't see that being... Uh, talked about in this race of what's next Portland. And it's not about being a leader for the world. I don't think that should be our goal, right? Because what's made Portland great is that we've built places that work very, very well for Portlanders. And that's what people admire is that integrity, that authenticity, um, that quality of place that we've made. But what we've failed to understand is we need to make sure that that quality of place exists for all Portlanders. So I believe that Portland can stay a model, um, not by doing things that to show off to the rest of the world by, by, by continuing to make Portland a great place for all Portlanders. So for me, the inclusion and the equity is the next frontier for us of how do we make sure that Portland stays a premier city, a livable city, is by making sure that it's inclusive and equitable and just. If we can pull that off, boy, oh boy, I don't want to hear any more talk about boom or bust because we're just going to keep going on a trajectory people won't be able to keep up.
1: Sarah, thank you for speaking with us today and thank you for uh, running for mayor and for raising issues that are important to the city and, and um, best of luck with the, the, the final weeks leading up to the primary. Um, song to take us out?
3: Um, something by Nina Simone. It's a beautiful sunny day out there, so I'll leave it to your discretion. Excellent. Thank you for keeping the conversation about nonprofits alive. They're so important and I'm glad that you're keeping the citizens of Portland tuned in to what they've got going on. Thank you.
4: New life for me ooh, 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 ooh. and I'm feeling good fishing the sea you know how I feel river running free fly out in the sun you know what i mean don't you know butterflies are having fun you know what i mean sleep in peace when day is done that's what i mean and this old
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Nonprofit Hour from the Media Institute for Social Change on X-Ray FM. To become a supporting member of the Media Institute and find out more about their work, you can visit mediamakingchange.org. Members receive annual benefits and support programs such as the Nonprofit Hour and their summer documentary program. The Nonprofit Hour is also brought to you in part by generous support from Pacific Continental Bank and BusinessWorks. Find out more at therightbank.com or businessworkspdx.com. Next up, we'll be finding out about Surgery Store from Scott Brown and Ed Zancanella, who are also in the band Ojos Feos. We'll start out with one of their songs. Many of which have strong ties to Africa and human rights issues, and Ed gave us an explanation of the song for introduction.
5: So, the, the first song we're going to do is, is called "Peking Soldier." It's about the boy soldiers, which are many in Africa, and in particular these are we're talking about the boy soldiers in in Sierra Leone, of which Scott had the the pleasure of working with them. Uh, and I've met some of them and talked to some of them. And it talks about uh, the boy soldier.
6: Making soldier no
1: That was Ojos Feos, uh, which is a seven-person band uh, here in Portland. Uh, but what, what what makes them interesting is that they are a band that is... Well, I, I'm going to have my guest explain. I have Scott Brown and Ed Canella in the studio with me. Uh, Ed is an operating nurse. Uh, Scott is an anesthesiologist. And they are both part of a nonprofit called Surge and Restore, which works in Sierra Leone. And also two of the seven members of a seven-person band. Uh, welcome to the studio, both of you.
7: Thanks, Phil. Thanks Th- for having us.
1: Absolutely. That, that was a lot of explaining to do, so let's untangle that a little bit. Let's start with, with the band. Uh, where the, the name means ugly eyes. Where does that come from?
7: <laughs> it, it it comes from a saying that uh, I heard in Argentina quite a bit. Uh, they just say, why you give me those ugly eyes, which actually means why you give me those dirty looks? So... It, it's common use is dirty looks, and as a blues band, you actually don't want a name for your band that's real pretty. So we <laughs> chose Ojos Feos. And this is Scott Brown. Uh, uh, I play by the stage name of Robbie Cree. And, and uh, what instrument or instruments are you playing, Scott? I play quite a few, as does as Ed. Uh, in this band, I play keyboards, electric guitar, accordion, harmonica, and flute. And uh, Andean charango. And, and excuse me? Uh, uh, instrument, a folk instrument from the Andes called it, in English it would be called a charango. In, in Spanish we call it a charango, uh, which is very interesting. It's a small instrument which is kind of it sounds between a combination of a mandolin and a ukulele. And, but the original body of this instrument in the Andes was made with an armadillo hide. But you can't get that through customs now, ironically. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and Ed, what instruments are you bringing to the band?
5: I mostly play bass. I do play slide guitar, rhythm guitar, mandola, so, and I do add vocals.
1: And so, so I, we're going to start talking with the band, and I think that will bring us into the discussion of who Surge and Restore is and, and what they do. Or maybe I'm doing this uh, horse, cart in front of the horse, so you guys let me know, because there's, there's a lot of different uh, moving parts to this. Did the band come together first, or did the non-profit come together first?
7: the band came before this nonprofit technically but i have been doing nonprofit work now since i've been in portland so 15 16 years and originally we started doing nonprofit work in south and central america the nonprofit companies uh, charities then started going to to africa and the experiences that i've seen in these countries about the The oppression and the the poverty and the human rights really kind of led me to start composing songs that had political meanings and and were about human rights abuses. And Ed joined the band, I think, uh, after I'd been to Sierra Leone a couple times, and he was totally acceptable to the content of the music and the style, which not everybody is, to be honest with you. And he was an operating room nurse, and so I asked him if he wanted to go to Sierra Leone with me. He did, and he was very interested. So then we formed a charity, and obviously he would be the first person I asked to be on the board of directors with me.
1: So we're, we're going to back up in the story here a little bit more. Sure. So what did you know about Sierra Leone before you were asked to go there the first time?
5: Just what Scott had talked about, and mostly about the devastation from the Blood Diamond War, and about the hospital that he worked in in McKinney, which is a was a rebel outpost out in the middle of Sierra Leone. Uh, other than that, I, I knew because I had watched the movie The Blood Diamond War. Uh, but that was about it.
1: And, and do you remember your first experience going there? Do you remember getting off the plane and, and what you first saw or, or perhaps some of the first thoughts you had when you stepped oh, yes. up the plane?
5: Yes. I think the thing that struck me the most when we flew into Lungi, which is the airport that is just north across the bay from Freetown, uh, were the fires that were in the villages, the village around the airport. And when we got off the plane, you know, it was very humid, very hot. But there was a distinct odor in the air. And it was a mix of automobile exhaust, burning trash, sewer, and the ocean. And it was a very distinct smell that I'll never forget. Mm-hmm. And,
1: and you've been back a couple times since I've then? I've been
5: twice, Yes.
1: So I want to get to then the, the uh, Scott, what, what was it that inspired you or motivated you to, to take, to, to start Surgeon Restore? I mean, you were, you've, you've traveled the world, you've seen uh, some terrible things, and you're also seeing some opportunities for doing better. When did the idea come together?
7: I was working in Bolivia in 2007, and I'd been on quite a few medical mission trips, and I met a English surgeon named Barbara Jemak. We worked together well, and I've always been interested in cultures, and I think I expressed that in kind of my conversations, et cetera. She asked me to go with her foundation from the United Kingdom to Ghana, where they had a project, and I had been to Tanzania, before I had worked there for about 6 weeks a few years prior to that and so I met the Scottish and English team in in Ghana and the charity from from the United Kingdom is called Research Africa and they had started Ghana's first plastic and reconstructive surgery department Ghana did not have one and the government in Ghana funded four surgeons to train in Scotland and when we were there working a, a, an American Red Cross volunteer named Tom Johnston contacted the head of research Africa and said, I've just been back here after the war. I was here before the blood diamond war. I'm back here. This country is in need of everything. I heard you started this program in in Ghana. Would you be willing to do the same thing in Sierra Leone? Uh, And Martin Webster is is a surgeon who then went up to Sierra Leone and investigated up there. And he was telling us about it. And I said, geez, if you go there again, call me. So a year later, he did. This is Phil Bussey. It's the
1: Nonprofit Hour. I am joined in the studio today by Ed Zancanella, who is a operating nurse and a board member for Surge and Restore, and Scott Brown, who is an anesthesiologist, who is the founding member and director for Surge and Restore. Let's talk. I, I want to just talk a little bit about the band first, and then we're going to talk more about Sierra Leone. Uh, I mean, it's it's. How do you describe your band? I mean, it's it's bluesy, it's upbeat, uh, it's it's. Uh, it's it's festive, it's fun. How how do you guys
7: think of it? We created this style because no one else is doing it. It's called Afro Latin Blues and we're mixing a lot of American type music with rhythms from latin american africa you know carlos santana touched on this a while ago and i was always impressed that no one had really tried to do what he did so we thought we would do something like that on the latin side but bring in some african percussion since we work in africa with african lyrics latin lyrics and songs about human rights
1: surgeon restore just briefly tell us what it does
7: We are funding the training of doctors, nurses, and physical therapists to start Sierra Leone's first reconstructive and plastic surgery department. They do not have, that does not exist in the country, and the goal is to make this self-sustainable, similar to what Research Africa, our parent organization, did in Ghana.
1: How can it be self-sustainable?
7: We would have to have some collaboration from the Sierra Leone government, uh, which has been some ongoing talks with them. We have to have the proper training as well. Right now we're training two surgeons, excuse me, two doctors, to be, uh, Sierra Leone doctors to become plastic surgeons in Ghana. They don't have any plastic surgeons in the country, obviously. We're training a doctor to become an anesthesiologist. He's currently in India. They have no anesthesiologists in the country. We brought the country's first anesthesia machine. They did not have one. So we need to uh, train another surgeon. We need to train one or two more anesthesiologists. We also have started a nursing school there. It's a long project, um, but we're dedicated to be there. It's probably going to be another decade or so, but obviously we need need funding to do that.
1: Let's, Let's go back to the point, there's no anesthesia, there's no anesthetic tools. In the country of Sierra Leone before
7: you brought something there? They, they don't have any anesthetic tools that we've been using in this country for the last half century. Uh, they do spinals and they do ketamine drips, which is a drip that uses, is used in some of the military zones by the United States government. But the level of anesthesia is decades and decades behind, and it is quite unsafe. And, and it sounds quite brutal for surgery. It's not modern, Correct.
5: It's doable, but it's not ideal. And and so
1: reconstructive surgery. Uh, w- what is the need uh, for Sierra Leone's for reconstructive surgery? Is this? Am I making a correct assumption that this is something coming out of uh, w- what has been a country that has suffered
7: war and and then more recently uh, uh, Ebola? Correct. Reconstructive surgery in the developing world means cleft lips and pallets. It means burns. It means machete injuries. It means all sorts of work injuries. We also have seen this in Sierra Leone, which I've never seen in any other countries before. And I've worked in about 17 or 18 countries. They get these big, huge leg ulcers. Healthy 20-year-olds get these huge leg ulcers, which can be, geez, 10, 12 inches long and three, four inches wide, and they need to be skin grafted. And if they don't, they get infected and they have the chance of losing their legs.
1: and and one of the interesting things as well is is um, the Ebola crisis has has passed for all practical purposes from Sierra Leone, uh, how, you know. But one of the concerns is that when a crisis like that uh, leaves a country, so does some of the uh, international attention, international support. Uh, but it, it sounds like you are bringing in surge and restore to be a long lasting.
7: Influence there. We have a long term commitment to the country, correct. Uh, As I stated, uh, our goal is to make their uh, reconstructive and plastic surgery department self sustainable, and that is going to take us at least a decade.
1: This is the nonprofit hour. I am talking with uh, two members of Surge and Restore, a Portland-based nonprofit that works with works in Sierra Leone, uh, working to bring medical services and and to help a uh, country which has which has been troubled for the past few decades. Uh, they are also part of the band that
7: was playing in that in that song. What can you tell me Scott about the that song? The song is called El Corazon de Leopold, which means the heart of King Leopold, and this song was inspired after I read a book by Adam Hothschild, a very good book, not really uplifting, but it's called King Leopold's Ghost, and this tells a story about the Congo in the late 18th century in the early, excuse me, late 19th century and the early 20th century that was owned personally by King Leopold of Belgium. And he continued atrocities, including slavery, for nearly half a century after the rest of the world did. Yeah, that that is, it is such a brutal read. It's, it's not uplifting, but it's knowledge that is very... Uh, it's 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 knowledge that's good to know if one has any is traveled internationally and is concerned about human rights. But the thing about that is that the country of Belgium has denied that.
1: Yeah, and it's it's incredibly well written book, and 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 like you're saying, it does really shine a light on a in very dark history. And uh, so you wrote this song right after reading that
7: book, or correct, during... correct.
1: You guys will be playing on the, uh, May seventh. And an event that is raising funds for Surgeon Restorer. Hey.
7: Correct, correct. We're we're combining with two Sierra Leone uh, charities as well. One's called the Dynasty House, which uh, pays for the education of primary school and secondary school people. And then a, a new foundation, which we're very excited to work with, called the Sierra Pacific Alliance. So we really hope to get a, lo- a lot of the West African community, specifically the Sierra Leoneans, at this event at Vidae Boheme. We're uh, starting the event at doors at five o'clock and it should last all night long
1: and if people want more information they want to find tickets for it
7: go to ohosfails.com and on the home page you'll find tickets for the fundraiser
1: it sounds like it sounds like a great event uh can you just spell out ohosfails.com the url please uh,
7: certainly ojosfails o-j-o-s f-e-o-s it's combined, it means ugly eyes in Spanish. Once again, that's dot com.
1: Wonderful, and I definitely encourage people to check out the event and, and to check out the website. What are you raising funds for? Specifically, what are, what are you raising funds for?
7: We are financing the education, specifically of the anesthesi- anesthesiologists who are going to support the Reconstructive and Plastic surgeon, Surgery Program that we're establishing in Sierra Leone. That's our primary goal, but as we get more money, for example, we uh, were building a maternity ward there, and that requires some funding as well.
1: And and so what is the medical training in Sierra Leone? Is there a medical school there, or is this often uh, people coming from the outside and, and training as as Surgeon and Restore is, is doing?
7: There's, a, there's one medical school in Freetown, and it varies on how many students are graduating each year. Sierra Leone is a country of about 6.5 to 7 million people, and they're graduating between 21 and 25 doctors a year. Well over half of those doctors are leaving the country to get training as they need to train for their subspecialties and specialties. Most of that doesn't exist in Sierra Leone.
1: So uh, Sierra Leone is roughly a larger, a little bit larger population than Oregon. And so if we were to add 25 new doctors a year, that'd be about the equivalent scenario.
7: Exactly. And with that in mind, the whole country has maybe 25 surgeons in the whole country.
1: I, I mean, that, that, that's, that's overwhelming to, to think about. And, and Surgeon Restore is is looking to train uh, anesthesiologists, surgeons um, and and what how many other
7: organizations are there out there how unique is surgeon restore for sierra leone we're we're you totally unique i don't think there's another organization who is funding the training of of any of their physicians in the country that we know of
1: i want to talk a little bit about uh both you two and just just you know where you grew up and 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 what you knew about sierra leone i mean this is obviously this isn't become an important focus uh for for both of you uh does that surprise you? Did, uh, Ed, did you think that that uh, Sierra Leone was a place in the world
5: that, that you would be spending uh, a certain amount of time and energy on? No, I never imagined, but until I met Scott uh, and he had talked about it, I was interested because I've always been interested in helping others through my profession, but just through my personality as well. And so this was a great opportunity, and for me to go and be a part of that was huge and your heart goes out to these people and you you realize the depth of despair and hope that they have and they're a happy people they're a, they're a friendly people and they have very little and yet they're so giving uh, and I don't need to see that to understand that there's that that difference but it's it's very it is humbling to see and humbling to be a part of and it's good for the soul and you you talked a bit about uh the
1: first time that you stepped off stepped off the plane and the the smells that you encountered when you were there can you is there any one particular person that that really has you've connected with or that that a story that has has maybe uh changed
5: the course of of what you're doing or reaffirmed what you're doing sure we we have a friend that works with the Holy Spirit Hospital in McKinney, which is where we, we do our work. His name is Amadou Bangura. And he's from Freetown, but he, was, he spends most of his time in McKinney. He and his father both fought in the Blood Diamond War. And when, the last time we went, we filmed a documentary, which will be shown at the fundraiser. So people will have an opportunity to see what we do. And see the people we work with and the conditions with which we work in so amadou is is a wonderful person when we went to uh, mckinney last time we went out to a village in in the eastern part of the country where we delivered soccer equipment to a little village from a sierra leonean from portland here and on that trip he we stopped along the road and he told us a story of where he got ambushed and it's 300 miles away from Freetown and They got he and his father got ambushed and he escaped and he made it all the way back to Freetown And it's a long ways a lot of jungle not very safe So anyway, i do is a, is a person that holds a really special place in my heart uh, Because he's he's there. He's a consistent person there at the Holy Spirit he is able to negotiate with the people in the country when we travel about, because it's not always so safe. And he really watches out for those who go there to work. And how, how do you stay in contact uh,
1: with the people you're working with in Sierra Leone? How is the uh, internet connection there? What is the technology availability to stay in touch? As, is, that, is that something that's not an issue for the organization, or is that something that's a, a huge hurdle?
7: They have They have internet access there, it's not always reliable, but we uh, contact people through the internet. Um, we're trying to get it in the hospital, which we don't have yet. So it's not as much of a problem as when I w- first went to Africa in 1999, and there was no internet.
1: And 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 I, again, I, I I want to talk about the the hospital that you you've mentioned a few times. What should I be picturing? I mean, is this? We're I'm not picturing the OHSU. I assume. <laughs>
6: Your
7: pitch, you should have in your mind about 80 beds and almost looks like something you might see in Ductari. Yeah, It's a small hospital. It's a private hospital right now. As I stated, we're trying to uh, start collaborating with the government of Sierra Leone, and that has had its challenges. It's a, it's a small hospital with 80 beds. We constructed about a, th- a third of those beds was through funding through our charity, and we also built an operating room.
1: And part of the funding that you're looking for is to expand that building?
7: Exactly. the Yes, the physical plant um, is somewhat of a challenge as well, yes. Uh, funding and uh, territory to do that. Eventually, we would like to integrate our training program with other training pro- programs for consultation, such as orthopedics, infectious disease. It's something that we aspire for in the future.
1: Surge and Restore is a... Portland-based nonprofit that does work uh, for Sierra Leone. Uh, Ed Zacanella and Scott Brown. Thank you so much for joining us in the studio. Uh, and I do encourage people to check out ohosfeos.com and find out information about the May seventh event. Uh, it will have and just a, as a little taste, another taste of some of the music that will be there. Let's let's take it out with one more song from your band. And thank you both for all the great
7: work you're doing. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Phil, for having us. We appreciate it. Okay, and this song is called No Hablan Los Muertos, and this song is in Spanish, and uh, it's translated into The Dead Don't Speak. This is a cumbia-based rhythm song that I, uh, that I uh, wrote with a couple of our former band members, uh, Gonzalo Villa and uh, Gaia Lyle, and this song is about the uh, Tlatelolco massacre in Mexico City in 1968 of about three to 400 university students right before the Summer Olympics, and they were Protesting human rights and political conditions and living conditions in Mexico.
0: We've now come to the end of this week's Nonprofit Hour show. The show has been produced and edited by myself, Jason Dennington, and is recorded at the production studios of X-Ray FM. You can follow us on Facebook or via our Twitter handle at Nonprofit Hour and find archives of past shows on our SoundCloud page or podcasts on the Apple iTunes Store. If you'd like to make a comment or suggestion about an organization we should profile on a future show, please send an email to nph at mediamakingchange.org. We'd like to thank our guests on the show this week, Portland mayoral candidate Sarah Iannarone, Scott Brown and Ed Zancanella of Surgery Store, the band Ojos Feos for their musical selections, and Rebecca Albert of Rosehaven. Keep listening to future episodes to catch Rebecca Albert's full interview coming soon. We'd also like to thank the Media Institute for Social Change, our regular hosts, Phil Bussey and Julie Falk, KXRY Radio X-Ray FM, our supporters, Pacific Continental Bank and Business Works, and most of all to you, our regular listeners. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you have a great week, and join us again next week at noon on Monday for the Nonprofit Hour Show.